Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 12 of Push Dose EMS, brought to you by Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I am your host, Jeff Matcha, the Clinical Education and QA Manager for Milwaukee County. Uh, we're excited to bring you uh, episode 12 and dive a little deeper into the topic that's been on everyone's mind for over a year now. And once again, we're diving back into COVID and a little bit more discussion on to uh, vaccinations, changes, things that are happening. Uh, joining me today, uh, our usual suspects. Uh, I'm going on my list for introductions. Uh, joining us, uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Pojar. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Jeff and team. Uh, QA Supervisor, Linda Mattress. Welcome, Linda. Hi, everybody. Uh, EMS Fellow, Dr. Luke Grover. Dr. Grover, welcome. Hey, everyone. Thank you. Uh, Assistant Medical Director for Education, Dr. Matt Chin. Dr. Chin, welcome. Thanks for having me. And making a special guest appearance today, uh, Dr. Dominic Diggs. Uh, welcome, Dr. Diggs. Give you a moment just to tell everybody about yourself. Hi, thanks for having me. I am Dr. Diggs. I am currently completing my training in Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Children's Wisconsin and happy to be here. Welcome. We're glad to have you. Before we dive too deeply into our subject matter today, as usual, we'll go through a couple updates. So I'm going to look at Dan for any updates from the office. Dan, anything for the system? Sure, Jeff. Thanks. Uh, just a few items to note here. Um, obviously, most folks should know now that the 2021 patient care guideline updates have been distributed and so it has a training video. So make sure you guys take a look at that and uh, reference the app as needed. Uh, education looks like we're going to be trying to get back in person for in-person simulations later this summer. So looking forward to that and not necessarily sitting in front of a screen, but actually touching a mannequin again for once. Uh, and then uh, two studies to make the system aware of. One is uh, still in the planning phases. Um, there's still some logistics being worked out uh, with the medical college and Zoll Medical, uh, but that's the ventilation study. So we're still um, awaiting some final details from them. So stay tuned. I know that one's been kind of queued up for quite a while here, but we're, we're continuing to encourage them to move forward. And the other... Uh, Study that's currently going on. Uh, it started on Monday this week, but it's the trauma alert study. Um, just want to make you guys aware that there may be some additional questions asked by EMSCOM when paging out a trauma alert, uh, and it could deal with patient demographics or specific uh, uh, assessment things or findings with the patients. Um, shouldn't be too much more questions, but don't be uh, alarmed if you hear some uh, some clarifying questions. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks a lot, Dan. Yeah, excited to try and get some of the education back to a norm and get you back in person and uh, lots of interesting, interesting things coming down the pipeline. So uh, thank you from the office and any medical direction updates, Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. We'll hold on the COVID update for just a few minutes since that's going to be uh, one of the topics of the podcast here. But just wanted to re reiterate what Dan was talking about with our guideline updates. We're excited to have uh, a lot of really great updates informed by uh, Linda Matrich and her guideline and policy subcommittee. So uh, definite kudos to them. Uh, really nice guideline changes incorporating a lot from what we see in quality improvement cases, what we see from new research uh, and what we hear from our providers. So 
Uh, I think a lot of exciting changes, some new guidelines, the medical director special consult guideline, head injury TBI, uh, excited to start ET3 in West Allis. Um, and then also just one to kind of highlight, and it's been on there before, but we're trying to emphasize it more, is the MTAC uh, guidelines. So as a reminder, MTAC is the medical trauma arrest consult guidelines. So this is uh, incorporated with a lot of the guidelines for cardiac arrest, but really anytime you're calling for an online medical control doc for cardiac arrest, please open up this guideline uh, and follow it. It just shows you how to walk through the case in an organized way so that you and the doc are on the same page. There doesn't have, there won't be any repeat as many repeat questions. Uh, you can get answers faster and get the patient the care they need faster. So please take a look at that MTAC guideline uh, and the docs will start asking for it too. They'll say, you know, med one, two, three, uh, this is doc one, two, three, give me your report in MTAC format. So that's a little bit of a prompt as well to use that format. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Rustin. All right. On to the topic du jour, uh, back into the realm of COVID. There's always news circulating. There's always new research, new information that they're finding uh, regarding COVID itself, as well as the vaccinations that are uh, now becoming widespread and available uh, to the general public. So we want to take a little bit of your time today to really dive into uh, some of the new information, uh, help with some of the, maybe some of the hesitancy in getting the vaccination and where we're looking while we're moving forward. Uh, so I'm going to bring Dr. Weston right back in uh, to the discussion. Uh, there's certainly been some new variants and strains of COVID that we've seen out there. Uh, what information do we have uh, regarding some of these new variants? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So we're certainly in a, a different stage of the pandemic than we have been so far. Uh, and we're seeing kind of two competing forces going on. So one, the, 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 the good force is the vaccines. And so we're seeing more and more people uh, getting vaccinated in Milwaukee County and Wisconsin and in, in the country. Um, and that is certainly helping with the efforts, driving down the number of cases, driving down the number of hospitalizations. Uh, but then on the other side, the, the problem that we're seeing are these new strains uh, that have been introduced. And so probably the one that you hear most about and the one that is certainly most common, and it's actually the most common strain of COVID now in the country. If you get infected with COVID, chances are it's going to be the B117 or often called the UK strain. This is a really concerning strain. It's caused major problems in Europe, uh, which is a little bit of ahead of us as far as how deeply embedded this strain is in their communities. But uh, over 50% of the cases of COVID in the United States now are attributed to the B117 strain. And the problem with it is it's quite a bit more contagious, 60% uh, or more uh, contagious than the previous variant. So that means a situation that you were doing in the fall uh, is 60% more dangerous to do now uh, than it was then with the same sort of circumstances. The other problem is that it uh, there's pretty good evidence coming out that it's at least 50, 60% more severe, more likely to put you in the hospital if you get it, more likely to have you be intubated if you get it, and more likely to uh, cause death uh, if you get it. So certainly we want to be cautious with these new variants uh, and really, we know the way out of this pandemic uh, is through the vaccines. And the good news is the vaccines appear to still be very effective against these new variants. So, so that's kind of the summary on the variants. Uh, and I'll hand it back to you, Jeff, as we keep going through some more discussion points on the COVID vaccines. Thanks, Dr. Russell. Yeah, it's definitely good that they're watching these different variants. Uh, and I know we've seen 
Uh, there's been discussion in the pediatric realm and why we're happy to have Dr. Diggs here with us today. Uh, we're seeing some more increasing infection rates within the pediatric realm uh, that we may not have seen earlier. Uh, Dr. Diggs, anything you can tell us in regards to pediatrics and COVID? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so while children appear to be less affected by COVID-19 than adults previously, we, we all know that they're not at zero risk from infection and illness. They can definitely spread the virus and they're just also susceptible to downstream effects of COVID. So things like social isolation, interrupt, interrupted education, all of these things have definitely affected our children. So recently this, this month, as Dr. Weston started talking about, um, states have reported new increases in the COVID-19 cases in children, which seems to be driven by more contagious variants. Um, the variant B117, as was previously, previously discussed, um, is spreading widely and children are definitely becoming more affected. Um, just some examples, um, in Michigan, the largest number of new COVID-19 cases are among children ages 10 and 19. Um, so the incidence in this particular age group has more than doubled in this state. Um, another example is in a state in Massachusetts, um, the largest number of new COVID-19 infection, infections in the last two weeks has been among ch children and teens. Um, and this state currently has the fifth highest number of recorded B117 cases in the US. So these are just a couple of examples. Um, and we do think that um, this particular variant is more contagious. Um, children are, um, starting to return to school. They are starting to get more involved in the sports activities and other social interaction events that were previously um, not possible um, last year. And they're also not eligible for vaccines as of right now under the age of 16. So all of these um, are reasons why we are seeing increasing infection rates in our, our children. Perfect. Thanks, Dr. Diggs. Uh, yeah, certainly concerning for those of us with, with kiddos out there. Uh, and we'll get into uh, some of those vaccination options and where, the, where that progress is going a little bit later uh, for their pediatric patients. But for the moment, I'll grab Dr. Uh, Dr. Grover and we'll take a look at kind of some of the information that we know uh, with the current vaccinations, uh, how they're working, what are potential risks with them, um, and how they kind of went through the process. So, Dr. Grover. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, we'll talk about a few things here very shortly. Um, so, vaccine benefit, some of the risks and side effects, of course, of vaccination. Talk a little bit about the safety profiles and then kind of end with um, what the CDC is currently recommending um, for what you can do after getting vaccinated. So in terms of health benefits, again, the, the initial big studies were the EUA approval studies, these phase three trials, um, more than 30,000 participants that showed this efficacy between 90 and 95% for preventing COVID infections. And these led to the big vaccine rollouts, of course. And I wanted to talk about where we are now and have these numbers kind of held up in the real world after rollout. And I wanna highlight one study group in particular because it directly applies to us. And this group is called the Heroes Recovery Network, or sorry, Heroes Recover Network. This is a prospective study cohort done on frontline healthcare workers and first responders. So this is you and me, the high risk exposure group because we have to treat everyone. So this is directly applicable to us. In an interim analysis of this group, and it's an ongoing study, 
participants included unvaccinated people and vaccinated people who got either the Pfizer or Moderna shots. These are the mRNA vaccines. And they followed them over three months from like December to around March. And they got tested weekly to see who got COVID. And this was almost 4,000 people. And what they found in this group was about 90% effectiveness in preventing COVID infections after both shots. And interestingly, they also found about 80% effectiveness after just a single shot. So in a group just like us, these vaccines are holding up really well and preventing 90% of infections, which is fantastic. And I wanna briefly discuss kind of the, the outcome measures of these studies. And this will apply going forward too, because vaccines continue to be actively studied. And it also applies to other vaccines, just like normal flu shots too. But the question is, what is efficacy and how do we measure a vaccine's effectiveness or success? One measure is certainly the prevention of disease. As we've discussed and studies continue to show, all the COVID vaccines reduce the incidence of COVID infection, which is great because you can't get sick if you can't develop an infection. Some are more effective than others, like the two-shot series of the mRNA vaccines boast this 90 to 95% effectiveness range depending on the study. The Janssen vaccine, the single shot, however, found only about a 66% effectiveness in preventing COVID in their phase three trial data. And this sounds like a really big difference, but there's more than one way to measure effectiveness. And instead of simply getting or not getting COVID, another measure is severity of infection. And if that infection will lead to either a hospitalization or a death. And what's important to remember with Janssen's vaccine, and this is based on the phase three trial data still, there were no hospitalizations or deaths in the vaccine group from COVID. And it was also found to reduce the severe infections by up to 80%, meaning the symptoms are much milder after vaccination which is why the CDC doesn't recommend any one vaccine over another. They are all considered equally efficacious in their COVID disease prevention. Now we'll just briefly mention that Janssen has been on hold at this time due to the concerns of blood clots, specifically venous sinus thrombus. Six of these clots were found in very specific subgroups of women of childbearing age with low platelet counts. And it will continue to get evaluated going forward. And this recommendation may change in the near future. But remember, Janssen remains an effective COVID vaccine. Next, I want to talk about some of the kind of risks and side effects. And we'll start with the Pfizer and Moderna together, the mRNA vaccines. At this point, there's been a lot of like post-vaccine surveys that have been done on millions of people. And most people will have pain at the injection site, which isn't surprising. Otherwise, fatigue, headache, myalgias were reported in about 20 to 30% of people after the first dose. And this approximately doubles to around 40 to 60% after the second dose. And then things like fevers and chills are more common after the second doses as well in about 20 to 40% of patients. Generally speaking, rates of side effects are higher with Moderna compared to Pfizer, but relatively common in both groups. And most are mild and self-limiting. I wanna to touch briefly on anaphylactic reactions too. And the CDC estimates as a baseline that these reactions occur normally at a rate of about 1.3 per million for any vaccine. Now for the Pfizer COVID vaccine, these rates have been around five per 1 million doses, while Moderna is about 2.8 per million doses. 90% of these reactions occur in 30 minutes and about 80 to 85% have occurred in people with a history of allergic reactions. So yes, COVID mRNA vaccines carry a higher risk of anaphylactic reaction, again, about three to five cases per million compared to about 1.3 for all other vaccinations. But remember, overall, these cases remain extremely rare. And based on released data, none of the patients have died from that reaction. 
In terms of Janssen, again, injection site pain, headache, fever, myalgias reported in about 30 to 50% of people. Overall, uh, side effects have been generally found less severe than the mRNA vaccines. Also, no cases of anaphylaxis were seen in this Janssen uh, recipient group. Um, again, that's just based on published early trial data. Another, another prevalent idea I wanna to touch on is just the safety of vaccines um, being in question because it was rolled out so fast and I wanted to take some time to explain this concern. And upfront, simply put, no, the COVID vaccine was not rushed out and no corners were cut in its development or analysis. In retrospect, uh, the name Operation Warp Speed, this was the government initiative to rapidly produce the COVID vaccine may not have been the greatest name, but it had no effect on the safety studies of the vaccines. The efficacy thresholds for determining a successful vaccine were set before the trials began and the goalposts were never moved. And briefly, mRNA is not a brand new technology in terms of vaccinations. They've been used in medical research for over 10 years. Some examples of studied uses include like Zika, rabies, and just the flu. And then they've also been studied in different types of cancers. Coronaviruses are also well-studied infections. And in recent memory, we've had MERS and SARS, which were also coronaviruses. And through previous research, the COVID vaccine target, the spike protein had already been identified and researchers kind of already knew what their target was when the research began. Now, generally speaking, the biggest hurdle in vaccine research and other drug research for that matter is money. And the pandemic declaration gave tons of money to research and manufacturing companies. These and normally each step in the vaccine approval is done in series. So enrollment starts small with small scale trials, moving on to phase one, they analyze the data, go to phase two, et cetera. And once the safety and efficacy have been demonstrated, then the production is ramped up, then the infrastructure is built, and then the vaccines are produced in large numbers to get out to people. Because if the vaccine like fails early on in one of these trials, there's no reason to continue moving on with it. The part that changed with COVID was the money and that money, the financial risk to these large companies, it almost disappeared. Companies could then do multiple steps at once or complete parts of the trials in parallel. They could afford to enroll, follow and analyze all of this data in real time while also upgrading production and the logistical technologies required for mass vaccine rollout all before the vaccine was actually approved. Normally this would be far too risky for a company to do without a proven vaccine because again, if the vaccine fails at any step, it's all a waste. But essentially this huge financial gamble paid off and spectacularly so because the vaccines are very effective and very safe. So once the EUAs were granted, the vaccine and distribution was already in place and it could begin immediately. So yes, the COVID vaccine from a development and approval to rollout all happened on a much shorter timeline, but each individual step was completed. All the safety trials and efficacy trials were the same as for other vaccines. We just threw enough money at it to make it happen. And finally, now that the vaccine's out there, you know, how does this affect our daily lives? And I wanted to touch on kind of the current CDC recommendations on what you can do after you've been vaccinated. And the CDC here calls fully vaccinated uh, two weeks after your final shot. So once vaccinated, CD says you are okay to visit inside a home or private setting without a mask or having to be six feet apart with other vaccinated people. So if you and your friends are all vaccinated, you're free to hang out at your homes. You can also visit private and again, home settings with one family who is not vaccinated, provided they are not at high risk for severe illness. And this is a really important point because it includes things like visiting with children and grandparents if they're not yet vaccinated, which we know has been a difficult limitation for many families.
You can also travel domestically in the country now uh, without any kind of pre or post travel COVID testing. And there are no quarantining requirements for vaccinated people either. Um, there are some international destinations you can go to uh, with these same rules, but check before you go. And finally, um, and importantly for first responders and healthcare workers, if you've been vaccinated and are exposed to someone with COVID, you do not need to quarantine away from others or get tested as long as you remain asymptomatic. So these are some great updated recommendations here, but please continue the simple precautions, you know, other things, wear your mask, social distance in public, um, and just be careful around high risk people. Again, it's all about preventing the spread and every little piece of protection helps. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Grover. Uh, a lot of good information there. Um, certainly good to hear that, you know, all the proper safety and trial precautions were, were taken. And yeah, money does make the world go around and ha happens to help speed things up in some of these situations. Uh, you did take some time to talk about some of the differences uh, between the vaccines and their side effects. Uh, if I can grab Dr. Chin, uh, to kind of take us through what the differences in these vaccines are and then kind of what we're looking at, you know, moving forward with the vaccines as we get more and more of our population vaccinated. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for throwing it over. So uh, Dr. Robert did a great job of kind of summarizing the efficacy and stuff of the different vaccinations. We'll just touch real quickly on some of the technology used behind those vaccinations just to differentiate the three in particular that are uh, available in the United States. Uh, touch a little bit about kind of how they're stored differently and some of those uh, particular aspects of it. So uh, everyone is well aware of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. So those vaccines use uh, mRNA technology as opposed to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a viral vector, which uses uh, an adenovirus, uh, which is uh, in this case, a human adenovirus, uh, similar to uh, AstraZeneca, the vaccine that's not available currently here in the United States, but available uh, uh, across the world here, uh, that also uses an adenovirus vector to basically transfer the genetic material for uh, producing the spike protein, which produces that immune response that we see. So they both uh, essentially do the same thing to provoke an immune response. They just do it in a slightly different way. Uh, and so we see those two main technologies dominating the, the market right now, which is mRNA and the viral vectors. Um, in terms of uh, stability for those uh, vaccinations, we all know that the mRNA vaccines generally require a kind of colder storage temperature so we're looking at, you know, the ultra cold storage temperatures for the Pfizer vaccine in particular, uh, usually around negative seven degrees Celsius uh, for kind of shipping and storage uh, and then being stored at, you know, two to eight degrees Celsius for a short period of time before delivery of the vaccination. Moderna has a little bit more flexibility there, uh, requiring only kind of a negative 20 degrees Celsius storage temperature uh, and also having a little bit longer of a prolonged time at two to eight degrees Celsius of roughly 30 days or so. Um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, obviously much uh, easier to store. So usually transported around two to eight degrees Celsius can be, uh, uh, you know, stored there for about three months uh, and at negative 20 degrees Celsius has a, a shelf life of about two years. So uh, certainly more flexibility there for that type of vaccine. In terms of, uh, I think Dr. Grove already touched on full, fully vaccinated uh, and kind of uh, what the definition of that is. Obviously, greater than two weeks after you've received your second dose in a two-dose series or two weeks after a single-dose uh, vaccine, such as the Johnson Johnson vaccine. Um, in regards to kind of vaccinations following a COVID infection, obviously the CDC guidelines suggest that uh, the immune response provoked by a COVID-19 vaccination is greater than that of the natural immunity. So there's still a recommendation, even if you've had COVID-19 to uh, acquire the vaccination uh, at uh, your next available period. Um, so that's the recommendation currently coming down as well. 
Uh, and there are several studies that seem to, again, demonstrate that the immune response that you get from the vaccination is actually greater than the natural immune response you get from a, a true vaccination. Plus, uh, like we've mentioned before, the safety profile of the vaccination is much better than obviously trying to acquire COVID-19 as a, as a source for your uh, immunity. Um, so the vaccination is recommended in those particular cases. Um, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel kind of moving forward, what does the future of this look like? Uh, so the phase three trials, for instance, for Pfizer uh, have now demonstrated that up to six months at this point, uh, the vaccination is about 91.3% effective um, when looking at a time frame of about seven days post-vaccination to six months uh, post-vaccination of the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, in terms of what that means for us in the future, I think we don't have enough evidence to, to be able to say whether there's going to be a need for um, kind of uh, booster shots or things like that. I think the uh, major pharmaceutical companies have put out statements that it seems likely uh, that booster shots may be required exactly at what time frame I think uh, is still to be decided as we kind of uh, further study these uh, vaccinations at these prolonged uh, periods of time, as well as better understand the, um, the variants of the strains that uh, Dr. Wesson addressed earlier and how those affect the efficacy of this vaccination. Um, certainly we know that, you know, multiple vaccines uh, do require annual boosters like influenza. And so there's uh, the possibility that this vaccine could certainly sit in that uh, box, but I think there's more information to be gathered before we make that decision moving forward. Um, and so with that, uh, that's kind of my a brief summary of kind of what the differences are between the different vaccinations, kind of uh, the guidance following a COVID infection, and then uh, what we're looking at in terms of uh, vaccines moving forward and, and the potential for boosters. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Chin. Uh, so yeah, uh, we'll keep an eye on how those studies go and see, you know, if and when those boosters are going to be needed um, as we go forward. Uh, we talked about a little bit earlier uh, with the increased infection rates in pediatrics. Uh, I'm going to grab Dr. Diggs one more time. Uh, any news on any on vaccinations for our pediatric population? Yes. Yeah, so as we've been talking about um, during this podcast, vaccination is very important. It helps prevent disease. It helps mitigate downstream effects, and then more importantly, help our children reengage in their activities. So as of right now, Pfizer COVID vaccine is approved for children 16 and up. Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, you have to be 18 years or older. So as of right now, we, aren't, we are not able to give the COVID-19 vaccine in children under the age of 16. What's nice to know is that um, we are actively trying to get the vaccines um, in our younger population. So Pfizer has um, enrolled children aged 12 to 15 years old um, during their original phase three vaccine trial. And the preliminary data is showing that the vaccine was safe and 100% effective in this age group. So Pfizer has recently requested an FDA clearance for vaccines in kids ages in 12 to 15. Hasn't been approved yet, but hopefully soon. Um, there are Pfizer is also currently launching a trial to test their vaccines in children's ages six months to 11 years. Um, so they're currently in the first phase, they're determining the proper dosage of each age group. And then as they go through that phase, subsequent phases will study whether the vaccine can induce an immune response, how well um, are the shots tolerated in children, and of course, monitoring the side effects and the other safety issues. So um, big things are happening um, to try to determine if we can give this vaccine in our children. Moderna is also currently undergoing a testing trial for um, children six months to 12 years as well. So it's very hopeful that soon we will be able to vaccinate our children, but as of now, um, only 16 and up is able 
to get the Pfizer vaccine. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Diggs. Yeah, it's good to hear that the trials are underway and hopefully soon we'll be able to get that out there to protect our kiddos as well. Uh, so that covers a lot of the information that we really wanted to uh, clarify and express out to the system. Uh, we did open uh, this round of the podcast up for questions uh, from the system, and we did get a, a number of really good ones. Uh, hopefully some of those have been answered. Uh, a lot of the questions revolved around uh, booster shots and uh, some of the effic efficacy of the vaccines. Uh, along with the questions, we do know there are a lot of myths, uh, beliefs, and social media posts surrounding the vaccination. So I'm going to grab Dr. Weston Crick, and I'm going to kind of rapid fire through some of these ones that we know are floating around out there. Uh, so Dr. Weston, is there a microchip in my vaccine? There are no microchips in any of the vaccines. Excellent. Can the vaccine cause infertility? Uh, no, the vaccine has been studied on tens of thousands of people. Uh, and now the vaccines have been given to hundreds of millions of people just in the United States alone. Uh, and that is a, a hard no. Uh, can the vaccine give me COVID? Yes, this is one that comes up a lot. The vaccines uh, do not actually contain uh, the, the COVID virus in its entirety in order to infect you. So no, uh, the vaccines cannot give you COVID. Sometimes people have flu-like symptoms, uh, as was talked about earlier in the podcast, for a short period of time, maybe up to 24 hours. Uh, most people don't have any symptoms other than maybe a sore arm. Uh, but if you do have those symptoms, that is your body working. That's your body building up immunity for the time when you uh, may actually be exposed to the COVID virus. Excellent. And how about the vaccine changing my DNA? Uh, no, the vaccines. Uh, so this is comes up sometimes with the mRNA vaccines. Uh, we won't get into all sorts of detail, but basically mRNA is very different uh, from DNA. And so there is no DNA in the vaccines uh, and they cannot, they don't even enter the nucleus of the cell that contains the DNA. So the answer is uh, no. All right. And if I was apprehensive about getting my vaccination uh, due to funding, uh, what kind of cost or billion am I looking at? to get the vaccine? Yeah, so this is very carefully regulated uh, and individuals cannot be charged anything out of pocket for receiving the vaccine. Now, if you have insurance, uh, your insurance may be billed uh, for an administration fee for the vaccine uh, if you do it in certain healthcare type settings, um, but you will not be charged a, a copay or, or anything like that. So there will be no money out of your pocket toward the vaccine. All right. I know and as uh, Dr. Diggs had said, uh, they're working on different dosing for our pediatric patients in the trials, uh, but I'm concerned that, you know, I might not be getting the full dose and they're watering down my vaccines. Yeah, there's no, no watering down of the vaccines. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward process. We get the, the vials of the vaccine uh, and we simply draw up the amount that is supposed to be administered for each vaccine. Uh, there is plenty of vaccine supply uh, and there is, is absolutely no incentive anywhere to water down vaccine, nor has that been, been done. I said, and one important question that did come my way, uh, when can I expect my superpower to kick in? We're all still waiting. All right, so there's nothing I need to do. I can just hold out and wait. You just hang tight, it's coming. Don't worry, Jeff. All right. Uh, other questions we got in 
from the field. Uh, there are questions on PPE usage, uh, surgical masks versus N95s. Uh, recommendation from the office is follow whatever is in the most recent numbered notice. Uh, we will keep those up to date uh, with the best guidance that we can for you. And the other question that really came out of the field was concerns over pregnancy in the vaccine. Uh, so Dr. West and I will, or whoever, if anybody wants to grab. Yeah, no, I can, I can jump on that. So, uh, so pregnancy and, and breastfeeding also, also comes up a lot. Is it safe to do, to be pregnant and receive the vaccine? Is it safe to be breastfeeding and receive the vaccine? So like many medications and like many vaccines, uh, there are not trials at this point that specifically look at pregnant women or breastfeeding women uh, as an entirety of the group and see if the vaccine is safe in them. Now, that said, uh, lots of people who were in the trials of tens of thousands of people became pregnant during the trials. Uh, lots of people started breastfeeding during the trials. Uh, and at this point, 200 million people, as of today, 200 million people in the United States have received uh, a COVID-19 vaccine. And so lots and lots of people um, that are now being followed um, but looking at uh, experts from across the country, from around the world, uh, and expert organizations, so these uh, organization of gynecologists, these organizations of uh, OB doctors, uh, these organizations of family practice doctors, uh, the vast, uh, a large portion of them, the, probably the vast majority of them uh, have re re uh, released statements clarifying that when you look at the mechanics of the vaccine, when you look at the way that it works in your body, uh, there's no reason to think that it has any effect, uh, any adverse effect on pregnancy, any adverse effect on breastfeeding mothers. Now, you have to always balance your risks here. And so then you have to consider the risk of getting COVID while pregnant uh, in an immunocompromised state, getting COVID while uh, breastfeeding and being closely exposed to uh, a newborn baby. So uh, the benefits here, uh, the general thought is the benefits for pregnant women, the benefits for uh, breastfeeding women certainly appears to dramatically outweigh uh, the risks. But certainly these are questions to talk to your healthcare provider about. Talk to your physician, uh, your OB, and, and get their input because they're people you trust. They're people who are caring for you, caring for you in your pregnancy, caring for you uh, right after your pregnancy if you're breastfeeding. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Weston. I believe that wraps us up for the questions that I got from the field. Uh, touched on most of the myths that we came readily to mind that we see on a regular basis. Uh, I appreciate everyone's time, uh, both in listening to us go, go on about COVID and the vaccines, as well as everyone who was able to join me today uh, in that discussion. So thanks to our physicians, thanks to our OEM staff uh, for turning out today. If you do have any continued questions, or concerns and you want to reach out to the department, please feel free to do so. Uh, we can get you some answers or get you in touch with someone who might know uh, the best answers for your questions. So thanks everybody and stay safe.